You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Welcome to part 2 of this special edition of the TNA podcast with our special guest Stephen Renan who's known by the name Babu Yagu on Twitter. In part 1 we talked a lot about the footballing perspectives on the footballing action on the pitch Liverpool Everton relegation battle and all and now we're going to move our discussion to data and data analytics so going to the podcast guys what data what i mean the question i i guess most people have is what data is fit probably if, if you want to analyze a particular team or you know how because we've seen uh, we've seen the revolution of analysis recently i mean memphis deepies uh, agent said that they had uh, they had analyzed which club was best suited for him and it came out that leon was the best choice and that's why they chose leon so i i guess we have a lot of tools like wise scout uh, stats bomb have their own opta have their own so we have a lot of tools and you know platforms where we can get data from but what are the i mean i mean i know this probably might not be the right question to ask because for different positions you have different data say like uh you have the expected goals expected assists which is probably the most commonly used thing uh, or the most commonly known thing uh, across people but for a position uh, probably if if you had to pick two 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 metrics or two stat statistical metrics for each position which ones would you go with and that, that that's the first question that i want to put through the second one being do you think the clubs i mean probably if you look at the top clubs uh around europe do you think these clubs are using uh data properly and you know, what what's your whole take on this okay well, going to the first question about metrics it's basically i i think how we think about clubs using data isn't how clubs use data so uh for example talking about metrics i don't think it kind of works like that i i don't think they look at expected goals or thing um performances above xg for forwards i don't think they they worry about that too much um the, the reason is is that um a lot of stuff that you see on twitter so like 99.9% of the stuff that you don't see on twitter is kind of garbage it, it's 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 stuff that doesn't have any value to a coach or a manager um but the way it works is basically um If you've ever seen those TED talks, I'm not sure if they're TED talks actually. If you've ever seen those videos where it's um, uh, a, a subject matter on five levels of difficulty, and then it's basically someone explaining the same point but on five levels of difficulty, so that someone who knows nothing about it can understand it, and at the other end, only someone who is um, completely knowledgeable in that field would understand it. So at level five, you've got Stephen Hawking explaining black holes to a physicist. and then only people on that level will understand it but on level 1 he can explain enough about them so that everybody in the world can understand it and so whenever you talk about data in football a lot of what you see posted on twitter is for clout and clout only works if it appeals to the masses and the masses don't really understand data in football and so what you're posting is stuff that will appeal to everybody but probably has no value to an expert or a football club because they're the experts and so like for example whenever i i look at a guy uh um i'm not going to name him because i don't like shaming people but um there's a guy who posts stuff on um manchester united data and he's got like 100,000 follows but the stuff he posts is very basic and it's it's just stuff like um tackles interceptions goals assists key passes just stuff like that it's just like surface level data that you find on sofascore and he posts it about teams and he doesn't really offer any insight at all and he's got 100,000 followers because that appeals to the masses. And at the other end of the scale there's a guy I follow and I think I started following him and he had like 87 followers or something and his name's John Harrison and I will say his name because he deserves to be mentioned. He analyzes goalkeepers and he does stuff that I've never seen anyone do before. And I watch those like Opta Pro videos on Twitter on YouTube, sorry. And I haven't seen it covered or anything near it on there even. He looks into like um do you know when goalkeepers face a one-on-one he's analyzing um the success rate of goalkeepers in one-on-ones but also what their actual process is so are they staying on the line and then rushing out when the guy takes his first touch 
so that they're hoping to catch him between taking his first touch and that. Is he rushing out early to try and smother the ball? Is he rushing out and spread himself? Is he rushing out and then trying to block the shot at a closer distance? So so he's actually analysing what the goalkeeper's process is, which is valuable to a club because... If someone's process is wrong, you can coach them to change it. But if you're just analysing what the outcome is, like a player scored a goal, okay, that's useful. But did he miss hit the shot? Is it repeatable? Yeah. Like, for example, Fabinho's goal against Crystal Palace, how many of those do you need to hit the score? And statistically, it's about 60. So it's not very repeatable. Um, but then again, if you look at like uh, another player scoring a goal and he's basically getting right to the back post for a square ball to tap it in, like Raheem Sterling, that's repeatable. And so if you're looking at data from a process point of view, it's valuable. But if you're looking at it just from an output point of view, it, it's kind of not really valuable. And that that's kind of what I mean by saying what we look at isn't the same thing that clubs are looking at. They're not really interested in that side of things. They want someone to, to like, for example, uh, Thomas Granemark. And if you're listening, Thomas, and I just butchered your name, I'm really sorry. But he's become an expert on throw-ins and no one else is doing what he's doing on the level he's doing it at. So therefore, he's the most valuable person in football for one specific thing that no one else is able to offer the same value on. And that's why Liverpool getting him was such a big deal because it adds something that no one else can add to their team. And that's why I was saying about John Harrison where if he's analysing something that no one else is analysing and there's a value to it at the end where he can say, for example... Goalkeepers staying on their line and then coming out when a player takes the first touch has a much higher success rate than a player who comes out early, gets dribbled around, or the, the player takes the shot early when he still hasn't set himself for a shot. There's an actual value there because you can coach it. You can say to uh, the coaches, your keeper's doing this and it's not working for him and he needs to change to this instead. There's a value and that's what, that's what teams want. They want an actual thing that they can take and use if that makes sense yeah and, and and like you said right for goalkeepers earlier probably the trend was to use expected assists but uh, like you said expected assists generally doesn't take i mean it also takes shots which are off target as well so i guess uh, i guess it was people at stats bomb who came up with this metric called post shot uh, expected assists, which I, I guess takes only the shots on target or something, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's like an evolution. And if you look at uh, if you look at different positions in a foot in a football pitch, you have the goalkeeper, the defender, midfielder, and attacker. Like you have a lot of different metrics to compare. I mean, compare and you know judge a player. Uh, if, if I mean judge a player, if if you are an outfield player, obviously. But for goalkeepers, it's it's very rare. So. So I mean I I I got I mean I kind of know the person you were referring to earlier about those stats, but if you look at goalkeepers, most people actually judge keepers by just mentioning the save percentage or the save number of saves they made, which like you said doesn't give a clear picture at all. It's it's a direct statistic. So I mean we've kind of had uh, people defending like I've seen people defending David De Gea probably. Uh, since 2018, I know that he's been probably uh, one of the best keepers in the world before 2018. I mean, pre-World Cup probably, but since the World Cup, he's been on a decline. But you still have people saying that, look at that guy. He's made that extraordinary save. He's, his save percentage is uh, more than 80% or something. But but it doesn't give the whole picture, does it? Yeah, talking specifically about goalkeepers... Um... I remember speaking to a guy who, I can't remember whether he's a scout or a coach at a youth level, but I remember speaking to him and he was basically saying things like save percentage, people dismiss it as being useful. But it actually is to a club because um, on a on a basic level, you can filter people who are saving most of the shots to face against people who aren't saving most of the shots at the face. And that way you can probably cut out 90% of the list of goalkeepers that exist because if people are conceding from most of the shots they face, they're probably not very good. And then that way you can focus your time and money and analysis on the ones that are saving most of the shots. And then once you start looking at those guys, you can say, okay, is he saving most of the shots because they're mostly easy shots? Is he saving most of the shots, but they're actually still really hard shots and he's actually doing really well? And so so 
in terms of metrics, there is some value in almost all the metrics that you use. It's just about what level a club would pay attention to those. You need something more. It's the analysis of that. Um, it, once you filter out on save percentage, it's how you analysis the, the ones once you filter them out. They actually get a value of which of those keepers with a high save percentage is actually good. That's where the value is there. So looking at goalkeepers, in, in terms of um, the save percentages of David De Gea, he's another interesting one that you mentioned because from my point of view, he was always much better at Manchester United than he was at Spain. And my feeling on that was because at Manchester United, they worked out what his limitations were as a goalkeeper and found a way to remove them from his performances. And one of those is probably dealing with crosses. If you remember when he was first at United, he, he dealt with a lot of crosses. Most of them were bad and he lost a lot of confidence. And then once you lose confidence, it isn't just dealing with crosses that's a problem. It's everything. You've just generally lost confidence in yourself. And so he would let shots through his arms. He would like parry shots straight the opponents to tap in. He was just generally bad. But then once Alex Ferguson worked out a way to remove problems from his performance that he didn't need to deal with, it helped him. He gained confidence. And then if he can just focus on dealing with shots, that helps. And so I think David Hay is someone who tends to just stay on his line, set himself very early to deal with shots, and gives himself the best chance of dealing with shots. The positive in that is he saves a lot of shots. And from a very basic analysis point of view, again, going back to the TED Talk thing of dealing with it on an expert level and dealing with it on a, a novice level. On a novice level, everyone thinks a goalkeeper saving most of the shots is good. Therefore, David De Gea is a good goalkeeper. And so that becomes the general media narrative, and that's fine. But then if you look at it on a higher level, if you are um, Pep Guardiola and you don't want your goalkeeper just staying on his line and dealing with shots, that's a problem because you either have to take David De Gea and coach him how to do the things that he doesn't like to do, or you build your whole system around David De Gea, and he's not going to do the latter. And that's why um, Pep Guardiola, as soon as he came into Manchester City, the first thing he done was get rid of Joe Hart. It didn't matter who he got in place of him, Joe Hart just wasn't going to work. And so he got in Claudio Bravo, also didn't work, but at least Claudio Bravo suits the system. So they could play their way, and it worked. It's just that Bravo wasn't a good goalkeeper. But he fit the system. At the very minimum, he fits the system. And uh, that's probably, again, the same thing about Jurgen Klopp and um, Mignolet. Mignolet's a lot like David De Gea. He, he tends to stay on his line more. Whenever you see David De Gea, uh, sorry, Mignolet coming out of his goal, like I still remember the penalty he gave away against Leicester. He genuinely looked like a guy running through a swamp. It was just so awkward. It's like his, his shoes were filled with water. It was just his legs were really high and dangly, and then he just wiped out Vardy at the edge of the box. It was just awful to watch. And I always remember that moment because it was like, you, you just can't have him in a team that's going to play a high line because he can't deal with things where he needs to come out of his goal. And so getting in Karius helps the team because Karius is very, very good on one-on-ones. That's the thing he was famous for in Germany is his ability to come out really quickly off the line. He didn't second guess himself. He didn't doubt himself. He came out early and he dealt with the threat. When it goes wrong, it looks really bad. But the fact that he has that mentality and it fits the system is what Liverpool needed. So again, like Claudio Bravo, that didn't work out for Liverpool in terms of him as a goalkeeper saving shots. But it helped them change the system, get the Champions League final, greatly reduce the number of shots they were dealing with at close range because those shots never materialised. Um, and so a lot of people put that down to Van Dijk coming in. But it's also equally important that you have a goalkeeper that fits the system. Even if the goalkeeper is a bad goalkeeper and isn't performing well, the fact that he fits the system means that you can actually play the way you want to play. And so that that's a key thing when you're looking at goalkeepers as well, is making sure you have the, the right goalkeeper that you need. The, the thing is, is that in terms of analysing that, how do you analyse a goalkeeper in terms of the shots that they prevent? And that's again where there's no value on Twitter. Because... On Twitter, all of the analysis is about shot stopping. And you'll probably see some stuff about dealing with crosses. You'll see a lot of stuff about um, Ederson and his distribution. But how do you get a measurement that says this goalkeeper prevented this number of shots? 
that would probably have equated to this amount of goals. And so getting back to John Harrison that I mentioned before, he's actually doing that. He's actually building a model that deals with how many shots a goalkeeper prevents based on his actions. And again, that's valuable. I, I can see an actual value in that. Because if you take uh, shot-stopping numbers to a club like Manchester City, who want a goalkeeper, they, they have no interest in that. It's it's not really useful to them. Like Ederson is basically an average shot-stopper. If you look at all of the data, if you look at Statsbomb's post-shot XG model, in terms of how Ederson performs against it, he's about average. He's like a an Adrian-level shot-stopper, I guess. But what he does is... Um, he adds a lot of value to how Manchester City play. And that value far exceeds him just being a, a league average goalkeeper in terms of shot stopping. Because that doesn't matter to Manchester City. They're not intending to deal with a lot of shots. So it doesn't matter. Whereas if he was, if he was like, say for I don't want to pick on um, Pickford because there's an Everton fan. But if you look at Pickford and his distribution, he gives the ball away quite a lot. He, yeah. He's someone that's um, more style than substance, I guess. Like, yeah. he's learned all of the techniques for, like, javelin throws, the sidekick, and he does them a lot. And when it works, it looks amazing. It's brilliant. But it doesn't work that often. And that's a yeah. problem. Because if you put him in a Manchester City, and they open their formation out, and they're wide open, and he's given the ball away, like, two out of three times, that's a major problem for them. And so that's... That's the thing about getting the right goalkeeper for your system. It's not a. I think there's like a, a hyper focus on shot stopping on Twitter because that's the thing that everyone can analyze and it's really easy to analyze. And therefore, because everyone can analyze it, it has a value when it doesn't really. Uh, yeah. I guess that's the thing. And the second thing I want to say as well about goalkeepers is um, I remember watching a video. I think it was in Italian. And I think it was Walter Zenga. And he was on an Italian show being asked about a goalkeeper who was like man of the match. And then he just turned the whole conversation around to be really critical of it. He was basically saying, if you're a goalkeeper and you're making lots of world-class saves, it can be because you're a world-class goalkeeper, but equally it could be because your positioning's bad and you need to make basic saves look world-class. Because if you're like half a yard too close to your post, you're opening up the whole goal for someone to put it in the opposite corner. And then occasionally you'll get some of those shots and you'll save them and they'll look amazing. And everyone will be like, look at that save. He has no right to get to that save. That's amazing. But when you analyze it from a goalkeeper's point of view, it doesn't look that great because you're thinking nine times out of ten, he's probably going to let that in. And the only reason that's going in is because he's standing in the wrong place. He's too close to his post. So it, I think a lot of analysis that we see is people looking for the obvious and particularly in goalkeepers, everybody can see basic errors and big saves. And so those are the valuable things. So a compilation reel of a goalkeeper making world-class saves, that's great. And then a compilation reel of a goalkeeper making stupid errors, that's terrible. Whereas if you uh, say, for example, Neuer, he's another goalkeeper that made loads of mistakes. Like he can't go through a season without like making five big mistakes, but it doesn't take away from his quality as a goalkeeper. He's just a very brave goalkeeper that takes a lot of risks because that's what the system needs him to do. And goalkeepers that aren't put in those places don't make those mistakes. So someone who's very safe, like um, Butland, for example, is absolutely no use, use to a team like Bayern Munich because he's not going to take those risks, but they need him to for the, the yeah. system to function. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, very, that's very enlightening. Uh, the information that you just gave us there that I mean s some fantastic points I mean just going back to the to what you said uh, to the goalkeeper situation I always remember I don't know if you guys remember uh, Tim Howard's performance in the 2014 World Cup for USA against Belgium he was playing for uh, playing for everything at the time uh, and he got man of the match uh, I don't know was it 20 plus saves or something can't remember the exact number that he made and he was tipping them all over the bar and I remember uh, just after the World Cup finished and I was I was in a bar in Paris and I was actually speaking to this American guy uh, and he was saying oh well as an Everton fan you must be uh, made up well, you've got a fantastic keeper did you see his performance in the World Cup and I remember and I, I actually pointed out to the guy that he, uh, he was sort of not he was sort of, he was sort of took, taken aback by what I said and I said well no, not really, because he actually should have saved all those shots. There wasn't one save 
when I actually looked at them and thought, oh my God, that, that's an, an, an outstanding save. I mean, the, the shots that he saved were, save, were saves that he should have made. And I, I suppose that's going to what, uh, when you're looking at, that's probably another element of statistical data that isn't reviewed, shots that keepers should make as opposed to the, key, the shots that they let in. Uh, when they should shouldn't be making a save anyway. Uh, I mean, is, is that something? I, I, I'm I'm not a goalkeeper myself. I, I've never played in goal uh, throughout my sort of amateur football career, if you want to call it that. But is that something that is looked at for keepers as well? Shots that they should save, or, or shots that they shouldn't be saving. Say, for example, if someone puts one in the if someone puts one in from 30 yards in, 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 in the top corner and there's absolutely no chance the keeper can do about it, then surely that shouldn't get held against the goalkeeper, statistically speaking. Or did he actually look yeah. at the starting position? Yeah, I mean, the the thing we were, we were saying about Statsbomb, they have a, what's called a post-shot XG model. Um, right. And so just to try and explain that a little, uh, an XG model is based on the chances of a goal being scored based on where the shot comes from. But a post-shot right. XG model is basically looking at the placement of the shot. So, say for example, um, Fabinho's goal at the weekend against uh, Crystal Palace, a uh, midweek, sorry, against yeah. Crystal Palace. So, the XG for that shot is 0.017, I think it is. Basically, it's got a 1.7% chance of resulting in a goal before he takes the shot. But once he yeah. takes that shot, that's rocketing into the corner of the goal. And he's hit it so hard that I can't see a keeper saving that. Like, I couldn't see a single keeper saving that. So the yeah. post-shot XG of that's probably like uh, 0.79 or 0.8, something really high like that. Basically, there's and an 80% that, chance of that resulting in a goal. So is that measured from the minute he leaves his foot, though, Stephen? Or, I mean, at what point with, with the ball in mid-air is that calculation measured from? Is it once it's because surely it can't be measured measured from like or is it measured at any point at Jordan from uh, at any point from that the ball is travelling? Um, well, well, basically, I was speaking to a friend about this as well. It's a guy called United Arena. Um, he's a Manchester United yeah. fan, but he does a lot of work with. Um, I think it's like projectile analysis or something like that. But basically, um, he, he has a friend who works in projectile analysis and they can take like the, the starting point and the finishing point of a shot and work out uh, the speed of the shot, but also the, the swerve um, yeah. and lots of other vectors, I guess, um, that I can't even think of because, again, I'm not a physicist, but they work yeah. all of that out to work out the difficulty of a shot being saved. And so Statsbomb model is based on this, a similar approach so that they take the, the finishing point of a shot, but also the travel of the shot, like did it go through players? Did it curve around a player to blindsight the goalkeeper? Did he hit it early before a, a goalkeeper could set himself or did he like have a run-up to it? All of those things are all factored in to basically work out what's the percentage chance that a goalkeeper could save that shot. And so they, they do an analysis based on how well goalkeepers perform, based on the uh, aggregation of all of that shot data for all the shots that he faces over the course of a season. So say, for example, you take the post-shot data of a goalkeeper and it yeah. says he should concede 15 and a half goals based on those shots. There's a, that's the accumulated probability of him receiving uh, conceding goals. And then let's say he concedes 20 goals, then you can say, okay, he's not doing well with shots. So, And then you take another goalkeeper and he's performing above, he, he's performing at, say, 12 goals. Then you can say, okay, he's performing better than the goals he should have conceded. And so that, that's the analysis that they do. Speaking about it on a club level, clubs analyze goalkeepers a little differently, I guess. Um, if you're a coach and you want to analyze goalkeepers, one of the things you're looking for is, is what I said earlier, limitations. So let's say you have a goalkeeper who um, doesn't deal with hard shots well. That's something you want to look at. You'd probably want to look at the, the um, shots that traveled above a certain speed, which is data that they would have. I don't. They would want to look at all those shots and say, how well is he dealing with hard shots? And so um, if you have a goalkeeper who has weak wrists and parries shots away 
close to his goal so that they can be tapped in. That's another thing. Weak wrists, they always want to look at that as well. Um, the ability of a goalkeeper, I guess, to catch a ball. Uh, I remember um, reading from a, a goalkeeper coach, uh, and he was saying that um, there was a kid who was... Um, he, he saw the kid dropping the ball a lot when he was playing, and the coach said to him, if you can't catch the ball, just punch it. And the problem is, if you teach a kid never to catch the ball, then he can never become a goalkeeper. So as yeah. soon as he received that advice, he was never going to become a goalkeeper. His career literally ended at that point just because yeah. a coach told him not to catch the ball. Because when he's a kid and he's dropping the ball, that's the time he needs to be learning how to catch it. He needs to keep dropping it until he stops doing it. He needs to learn ways to deal with shots that he can catch them or deal with crosses that he can catch them. So um, goalkeeping coaches at clubs, when they're analysing goalkeepers, they're looking for them to be able to tick certain boxes like um, in terms of limitations. Because if you have a goalkeeper that has a limitation, like if he can't come out and deal with crosses and you're a team that's going to have to face a lot of crosses because you play on a low block, it's, it's a problem. You can't have that goalkeeper. You just couldn't deal with them in your system. He would just hurt you too much. So it, it's a different way, I guess, that we would look at goalkeepers and the way like a professional club would look at goalkeepers. They're looking for certain things, elements to the game, whereas we're trying to like, analyze uh, like data in terms of like aggregated over a season um, based on how many goals he conceded versus ex expected goals. There's a value to it, but it, it's kind of limited, I guess, because you're always yeah. looking at the aggregation numbers. Yeah. So if yeah. I okay then. So so if I could just ask you then one question then. I mean, obviously you could. We focused a lot there on goalkeepers. Is there is there a position on on the football field, whether it be midfield, left winger, or sorry, centre midfielder, left winger, right winger, defence, etc., that you feel that statistical data plays too much of a prominent part in assessing a player's qualities? Um, it, it's a hard question, Anson. Yeah. And, and the reason is, is that uh, I, I don't work for any professional club, so I've never seen what information they have. And yeah. maybe this is a good way to explain it, I guess. Um, whenever we, whenever we look at stuff on Twitter, it's from people like uh, me who have an interest in numbers and science, I guess, and they're good yeah. with data and they can work stuff out. But at a club level, they're employing like if you look at Liverpool's team, I guess, at the moment, they have a team headed up by Dr. Ian Graham, who's a theoretical physicist doctorate and then they've also got a guy called William Spearman who's a particle physicist from CERN and he was one of the people that was studying um, this new particle that they discovered with the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, he was part of that team and then Liverpool recruited him on the basis of a presentation he'd done on Opta which you can see for yourself online and it was basically called pitch control and what it is it's taking all the tracking data of everything that's on the pitch every player the ball measuring its momentum and then working out which players are opening up spaces with their movement, closing spaces with movement and, and stuff like that. And it's got nothing to do with the ball. So therefore, yeah. it's something that's very interesting to me because everything we see on Twitter is about the ball. Um, and so this, this tracking data, if you imagine, um, let's say, for example, Roberto Firmino, and he drops off the line and pulls a defender with him, but he never gets the ball. And instead, Salah runs into that space behind him Someone plays yeah. at the Salah, Salah scores. The most valuable thing in that was probably Firmino's involvement, which isn't measured at all because he doesn't touch the ball. Where And the first thing that an attacking team has to do to score a goal is create space. So if you're counter-attacking, the space is already created for you, so it's not important. But if you're a team like Manchester City or Barcelona or Liverpool, and you're going to have so much of the ball... And you're going to predominantly face teams that are all packed into their own little block. And you need to open up that block. It's players that can create space that are most valuable to you. Because that's the first objective that you face before you score a goal. And if it's the most important objective and we're not measuring it at all with data related to the ball, what's the point? Because we can't really analyze a player that's going to be useful to Liverpool in terms of creating space. Because we've got no way of measuring what players can do that. And so that's that's the conundrum. It's like uh, th there's no metric I can give you because the, there doesn't exist one in the public that I can show you. The closest is probably a thing called um, packing, which is a metric that's um, it, it's basically how many opponents that you remove from play 
with an action. But again, it, it kind of relates to the ball, mostly. It's basically the player passing the ball and the player receiving the ball. Both get credited for it. So if you look at, say, for example, um, the goal that Origi scored earlier in the season against Everton, because it's one we'll both remember, Dejan well, Lovren a, played a ball from a, the back. Uh, how's it got that one in? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Dejan Lovren played a ball from the back, but it, it passed the whole Everton team. So that gets yeah. a packing score of 10 because it removes 10 opponents from the, the play. But again, there's no movement to it in terms of creating that space. The space was already there. It was behind the Everton team and Origi yeah. exploited it by making a good run. So again, those, those sorts of goals that sort of... Players like Messi, for example, how he creates space on the football pitch, I don't know how you measure that based on the data we have. But someone like Will Spearman, who um, uh, he's like a particle physicist, and he can treat people on the pitch like projectiles that are moving with a certain momentum and a certain vector. Uh, he can break all of that down and create something that says this player creates space at this rate, this player doesn't. Um, so I guess the example would be when Liverpool had Bentake and Firmino as forwards. Um, Bentake scored more goals when he played, but Liverpool didn't score many goals when he played. But yeah. when they did, Bentake scored them. And that's because Bentake is very static and he's a target man. And so he's going to stay in the box. And so when the ball actually does get to the box, it's probably going to go to Bentake. So therefore he scores the goals. Whereas Firmino yeah. vacates the box, pulls people around, lets other people have space in the box that they can fill. So the team scores more goals. And it's it's that it's the hyper analysis on players like Firmino that basically say he's missed a certain amount of chances or he's scored a certain amount of goals and therefore he's not a good forward. It's it's kind of ignorant to the fact that that's not what his most important function is in the team. Yeah. So he's there to enable only Mane you miss the whole goals, game. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no, I, that's... Uh, I mean, it's so detailed, but so logical, if you think about it. Yeah. I remember... Yeah, especially there's in a really old, case. There's, a, there's a really old quote from, from Johan Cruyff before there was, like, data in football and stuff, and it basically says... Um, a football player touches the ball for about three minutes in a game and he concerns himself with the other 87 minutes because that's how you find a good player. It's not yeah, what they do when they have the ball. It's everything they do when they don't because that's yeah. 95% of what they're doing. And so if you're someone who only looks at the ball, like, for example, when you're watching football on the television, the camera follows the ball and that yeah. creates people who will look at the ball um, and it's different when you go to a match because you can look any word you want. But I guarantee if you ask 90% of people at a game, they'll probably still just follow the ball because that's what yeah. you instinctively do. And the data that we have on Twitter and stuff like that, that's all following the ball. So if everything you're doing just follows the ball, you're kind of blind to like 95% of the game, which is a, a problem because it's probably the most important part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and the the way you said as well, there was a quote from Arsene Wenger as well, where he said that uh, that they, they, the first thing that they used to coach or they they try to coach their players is to think before you get the ball. So you process what you want to do the ne do next probably two seconds before you actually receive the ball, and that that that's a sign of a great player. That that's what he said, and yeah, you, you see people like Dennis Bergkamp who played for Wenger, Arsene Wenger, and he didn't score a lot of goals. He was not a very goal goal scoring uh, forward, I would say, but the way he played, the vision that he had, or the intelligence that he had was exceptional, and and that that's that's one player who I probably most people relate Roberto Firmino to. As well, so that, yeah, that that's a really really good point that you mentioned. Yeah, and and going back to um, the thing about thinking about what you're going to do the ball before you get it. Um, Emery Chan's a very good example of of this problem I have. Emery Chan's basically like um, when you watch kids play football in the park and they kind of all run towards the ball, and so what you end up was a big cluster of people around the ball. I always felt like Emery Chan was too much like that. Not to the extent that he plays it like a five-year-old in the playground, but he he always wanted to run towards the ball, and and he always wanted to get on the ball, and his thought was always about the ball, and he didn't seem to think about the spaces on the pitch too much, or or 
he didn't really seem to process the game tactically enough, I guess. And so Emery Chan's a kind of player where his numbers are going to look good because he's always involved with the ball, because he's always trying to be near the ball or always wanting the, the ball. He isn't someone that's going to move around to try and create space for someone else to exploit. And so that's kind of a problem I always had with Emery Chan is that he, he was kind of just very ball-oriented. He, he only thought about the ball. And it kind of became a problem in midfield. And Whereas if you looked at like the results when Liverpool played with Emery Chan, uh, they weren't as good as when they didn't. Whereas on the flip side of that, a player like um, Jeannie Wijnaldum, when he plays, Liverpool's results are better than when he doesn't. But when you look at terms of their data individually and compare them, Emery Chan's always looks much better than Jeannie Wijnaldum because Emery Chan wants the ball, gets on the ball a lot, does a lot of things with the ball, whereas Jeannie Wijnaldum's always thinking about the team and its shape and its depth and its structure. He's always thinking about how he can best move to help the team, whereas Emery Chan's always thinking about how can I move to get the ball. And it's sort of one of those is more useful than the other in midfield. Whereas if you're Emery Chan, if, if you're, say, um, Eden Hazard, and you have that mentality of Emery Chan, that's much more useful because you want Eden Hazard on the ball as much as possible because he's going to cause havoc. But for a central midfielder, always being on the ball and always thinking and running after the ball isn't always a good thing, especially defensively. If you're like running out of position, chasing after the ball, it's a major problem. I always remember a goal we conceded against Sevilla um, at Anfield when it was 2-2. And I always watch the build-up to that goal because it's mesmerising. And basically, Liverpool have their whole team in their own half in a nice little block. And Roberto Firmino's dropped in next to Emre Chan. And you have behind them um, Henderson and Wijnaldum. And so you've got almost like a little box in midfield that's protecting the defence. And then Sevilla are basically just passing the ball around outside that and for no reason whatsoever, Amre Chan sprints out of that block and chases the ball up the pitch into the Sevilla half on his own. No one else goes with him, just Emre Chan. And so they play the ball around Emre Chan. And then the space that Emre Chan left, the ball eventually goes there. And so Henderson has to move up to fill that space. So they move the ball around to exploit the space Henderson left. And the knock-on effect of that is in 50 seconds, the ball went from outside the goal to in the Liverpool, or sorry, outside the Liverpool half to in the Liverpool goal. And Emre Chan at no point gets back behind the ball. He's always ahead of the ball from the point that he just sprints up the pitch on his own, chasing after the thing. And 10 seconds after that, he was substituted off because it's just like, that, that always just sticks in my head. It's the absolute perfect example of a player trying to get the ball when that's not the objective. The objective isn't to get the ball. It's not at all. And so that's always the most interesting thing to me is that if he was to sprint off after the ball and then wins it high up the pitch on his own, he's going to get loads of plaudits for that because it's he's won the ball up the pitch. Liverpool maybe score from it. But if you do that often enough over the season, you probably succeed one time in 20. And the 19 times you don't succeed are always going to be a problem. And so what we see as fans always seems to differ from what coaches will see because fans are always looking at what a player does with the ball and we're always looking at individual performances whereas a coach is always looking at how the player is following the instructions to best help the team and so what Emery Chan's doing wasn't helping the team but if he wins the ball it looks great and if you're someone who likes players running around and showing enthusiasm and demanding the ball and it looks great but from a coach's point of view it's not what you want and so it's, that's always interesting to me is that uh, difference between how people process the game. Like um, Klopp being exacerbated by the fact that Liverpool fans are criticising Firmino for his finishing. And then he's got 20 coaches over from Germany saying he's the best player in the pitch. And he can't align those two things because he doesn't think like a fan. So, so he's hearing information that Firmino's playing badly. And then he's hearing from all these coaches that he's just devastating on the pitch, that all of Liverpool's goals came from Firmino creating space for others without touching the ball. And so it's just those two worlds that just can't seem to speak to each other, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it, 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 it's a pretty, uh, like the case of Emre Chan was pretty, you know, uh, unique, which you mentioned, because I, I, I like I follow you on Twitter. I've been following you for a long time, and 
I've seen you tweeting a lot about Emre Can and if you see a lot of goals that we've conceded as well, you can see Emre Can probably, you know, trying to get closer to the ball and leaving the space out. I guess probably another game probably was Watford uh, in 2017-18 season, the opening game of the season, I guess, where Emre Can kind of left off from where he should have been towards the ball and Watford breaking out and you know, scoring the three-three game, I, I guess it was. So yeah, that 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 is pretty much true as well, which you mentioned. Uh, that 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 really is a curious case, uh, Emre Chan, because he has a lot of statistics in his favor, but yeah, like you said, there are flaws as well to his game. So yeah, it it yeah. So sorry, another little thing as well. Going back to Wenger is um, when you watch Emre Chan, a lot of the times when he controls the ball. He seems to control it and then start thinking what I'm going to do with it. And so he would slow play down by taking lots of touches. Um, and that's also a problem. And another player that done that a lot was um, Jamie Carragher. And one of the solutions to that was that Xavi Alonso would just pass the ball in front of him. So he would always have to run on the ball. And then his momentum and thinking is forward. And Xavi Alonso is basically making the decisions for Jamie Carragher based on how he was playing the pass. And the best player I've seen at doing that is probably Busquets at Barcelona. So He's basically sending the information the with the ball with to the player, what they want to do with it, what direction he wants them to turn, what foot he wants them to control it with. So Busquets, when he's passing it to the guy, he can see all around that player, whereas the player can't. So he doesn't know if he's being pressed or from what side. And so that's another thing that kind of gets missed, I guess, with data is that um, if you pass the ball to someone and you complete a pass, that's where that data stops for that player. But if that player then immediately gets tackled because he didn't know there was a player right on top of him, then your team is losing the ball. And so um, whenever like press resistance and playing under pressure is such an important thing now in football, and it looks like increasingly going to be so, there's a thing I always refer to as hot potato. And it's basically footballers who don't care too much about whether the team gets out of pressure their only focus is on them not losing the ball so they just pass it to a teammate that's nearest to them they get very short-sighted um and i remember again another cruyff quote which is basically um the most important information you have whenever you receive the ball is how far away you can see so if your information when you receive the ball is at your feet because you're looking down at your feet and you haven't looked around before you receive the ball, so you don't know where anyone is, any of your teammates, any of your opponents, all of your information is useless. You have no information that can help you. Whereas if you're someone like uh, Xavi, and you've looked around 10 times before you receive the ball, you know where everyone is on the pitch, you know that someone's closing you down on your left, so you need to turn to your right, all the stuff like that. But also on top of that, you have someone like Busquets passing to you, who's also passing the ball to the direction he wants you to turn. And with enough pace so that you can turn and turn forward straight away. You don't have to run towards the ball. All of that sort of stuff is very, very useful, but isn't really collected with data. And you don't really see it. Exactly, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long time going this discussion. And obviously, we would like to discuss a lot more, but we do have a time limit. So we have one final question for you, Stephen, before moving on to... A patron question, which uh, one of our patron has asked. But before we move on to the patron question, probably I'll ask you the final question that we have, which is probably football clubs you know, coming up and hiring probably people from Twitter, experts. What's your take on the whole thing? Because I, I've actually seen people getting... I, I know actually there's a guy called Ashwin Raman. If, 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 I don't know if you know him. He's a pretty, yeah. he's a pretty nice kid. He's very young. He's very young. And he's a really good, nice guy as well. I've actually spoken to him uh, a few times and he actually got picked up by a club, which unfortunately he can't name the club outside due to several restrictions, but he got picked up by a club as a scout. So he has access to data and he works for them actually, as uh, which is a different job. But, you know, football clubs have started to pick out people from Twitter. You, if you see the likes of Rene Maric, who who kind of was kind of a data analyst and now he's the assistant coach to Marco Rosa at uh, Gladbach. So you have a lot of people you know, getting into jobs, football clubs actually noticing 
uh, you know, the work you do on Twitter. So what's your whole take on this thing? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. The thing I would say is that basically, um, like everything, there's levels to this. Um, so, for example, there's a the guy called um, BA Analytics. I think it used to be Blade Analytics. And he's um, a guy who um, he studied football analysis and he works for Peterborough, I think it is, as a performance analysis scout. And he got he he was on he's very um, popular on Twitter, and he also works for a, a, another company called um, MRKT Insight, and they are a football consultancy company. And if you look up who works for them, it's all people from Twitter. He obviously got together from Twitter, and they have lots of different experiences and value the odds. So one of them's an ex economist. One of them's an ex-banker. One of them's a performance analyst, BA Analytics. There's a guy who did data and uh, data science. There's a mathematician. So there's loads of different um, skill sets there that they've all put together, and they're creating a package to sell the football clubs. And so clubs, I think Swansea have hired that company, uh, MRKT and uh, Insight. I think Swansea's one of the comp- uh, clubs that they actually picked up, um, and they now work for. But the thing is. Um, they're not really working for the club because of Twitter. They kind of find each other through Twitter. But the reason that they have value to a club is all of their experience and things that they've worked on outside of Twitter. So the guy who's an ex-economist and the guy who's a banker, they're very good at market analysis. And so if you're trying to uh, analyze the transfer market, you, you want someone that understands markets and that experience doesn't come from Twitter. It comes from working in um, financial services and understanding how markets work. And again, the guy who's a, a performance analyst, he brings value in terms of analyzing players from a coaching perspective in real life, as well as the. So even though he's popular on Twitter, that's the thing that he does. That's what he understands. Uh, and again, the data science person, he he's able to use computers. Uh, and data and build databases and then extract information from them, build visuals. Again, there's a value there. And so it's not so important what happens on Twitter. It, it's the the qualifications and experience of the person. But again, talking about levels, that, that's what's happening at the level of, say, Swansea. If you, We're interested in Liverpool and Everton at the moment. So it, um, the director of um, Sevilla, I think his name's Manchi, he said recently big data is the future of football and that the battleground at the moment in football clubs isn't over scouts, but it's over engineers and physicists and people like that. And so when you look at Liverpool and their team of um, analysis, anal, uh, analysts, it's people who didn't start out their careers thinking about football because at the time they started their career, there was no such job for them in football. There was no such thing as a particle physicist working in football. So he had no interest in that when he started out his career. And so it's it's basically, if you want to get a job in football at the moment, at, at, the, at the lower levels, you can do it from, for, like someone like me, if I, if I was to focus on that area and put out good stuff consistently, I could get picked up by a football club. But a club like Liverpool isn't looking at people like me. They're looking at people like William Spearman, who's a particle physicist and worked at CERN. And I've got no possibility of ever reaching that. And, and that's just the reality of the situation, that you acknowledge that, that basically I'm not going to ever do that because I'm not on his level. It, it reminds me of the a TV series called Leverage when they said this is the the era of the nerds. And it really is. It's, it's basically people like William Spearman are valuable to football clubs. Yeah. I would never have seen that coming in my life. Yeah. Oh, and one other example, yep. by the way. I don't know if you know this. Arsenal Football Club appointed a guy as a data analyst. Um, he's the head of their data analyst team, and he's famous for developing Candy Crush. That's his. Yep, thing. I, I, yep. I, I guess he's a Russian uh, who had a STEM degree. I, I kind of read an article, probably. I guess it's the same guy. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, so I mean, he has a master's degree in physics and math, mathematics. And so, but the thing he's famous for is Candy Crush. And I just thought that's really yep. weird. And the, the thing that he's famous for is Candy Crush, and then he ends up head of that analyst at Arsenal. It's just hard to that. <laughs> it's just amazing. I love that. Yep. 
Yeah, I, I just I, I just read an article where uh, I, I, read, I guess it was him who shared his experience where he mentioned that he had nothing but a STEM degree. He, he developed a, a game called Candy Crush, obviously, which is very, very famous among people. Uh, but he, he basically had a STEM degree, which probably makes him a data scientist or data analyst. And that, that's why he got picked up by Arsenal. So that, that's really cool. That's really, really cool, to be honest. Myself being a, a junior data scientist, like I, I've been working probably in the industry for uh, almost two years now. I, I got a job two years before and I started getting into data science last year. So it, it's been a st- slow process for me, but I've kind of learned a lot. But I've kind of got an idea of what people are looking into, the amount of data you get to play with, the different kind of models that... Uh, you can do and and the uh, the limit is probably infinite because you can do almost anything with data which is which is what I've come to know and the only thing which you need is some luck and a lot of work which 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 is not possible from everyone of course like you said and yeah that that's pretty much the point yeah and sorry yeah. for interrupting Chris uh, I guess Chris was saying something. No, no, no. You, uh, no, you pretty much covered what I was going to say there myself. I was going to uh, just introduce yourself, and obviously you're working with data as well. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a real fascinating discussion and really in depth knowledge that 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 Stephen shared with us. Really, it's been really enlightening from my point of view. I mean, you, just to raise the point that you, I mean you. We've mentioned Johan Cruyff a lot uh, within this uh, within this discussion and, and the points that he's raised over the years. Obviously, he he weren't always back in is he back in his era. We'll call it. He weren't always too complimentary for for computer data, Stephen. I mean, I think one of the quotes that he raised was that. If computer data was around when he was 15 years of age, he would never have made it as a football, a football player because he couldn't kick the ball with his left foot 15 metres. Uh, and that computer data can't pick up a person's technical ability or vision, for example. Uh, do you think there's a sense going forward within football that it can be over-relied on? Or, I mean, I don't know if over-relied on. Do, do you think football clubs may take it too far? in the future and sort of forget the natural ability of the game or a natural talent within a person's ability. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, the, the, there's a thing I say on Twitter a lot, which is basically a lot of people on, on Twitter have data myopia. Um, they they yeah. basically only they only see the data of, of things and, and they don't... Um, like I can, I can watch. Uh, a, I, I actually wrote a bunch of articles on this on uh, a site called Empire of the Cop. It was basically looking at a goal that was scored and then looking at the movement of every player just on the television. So it was the, I used to make GIFs of it. And I would basically say what a player was doing and why they were doing it and what their intention was and how it contributed to each goal. And so it would yeah. probably be like 800 lines of text, just about a 30-second clip of a goal. And so one of the examples was a goal against Spurs, I think we can, we scored, where we took a throw-in on the left-hand side and the whole Spurs team was condensed on the, that side of the pitch. And literally within, you could break the pitch into like four quarters. Their whole team was in one quarter of the pitch. And so what happened was when we took the throw-in, it was passed out to Gini Wijnaldum, who then immediately passed the ball across the ground to the centre-back and then it went out to Trent Alexander-Arnold. Genie Wijnaldum sprinted across the pitch towards Trent Alexander-Arnold while hold, putting his hand as in, like, hold the ball. Once he got out to him, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold gave him the ball back, and then he just switched the ball straight across the pitch again to the other side. And the whole Arsenal team had spread out across the pitch, and most of them were now on the right side. And then from there, Van Dijk played the ball down the wing to um, Robertson, who crossed the ball in to um, Mane, and we scored. And basically, Wijnaldum's actions opened up the whole pitch and created all the space. But if you look in terms of data, all he done was pass the ball sideways on the pitch twice. It's literally all yeah. he done. But it, but it was so important. It was his idea yeah. to do everything that happened. 
It was his thinking. Yeah. And so you need to watch that to see it. You can't take data and, and really analyze that, that he just did that. It, it doesn't work yeah. like that. And it, yeah. it comes down to a quote that I read once from um, Rafa Benitez, where he basically said, data is important, but it's not the most important thing. Data can't tell you the sound of someone striking the ball cleanly. And that's really interesting to me that, that he still needs that emotion, that feeling, that sound of, of how yeah. someone strikes a ball to tell them how technically good that player is. And that's interesting to me. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. yeah. I, I, I suppose that's one of the great things about football now, the use of data it makes it very much... I mean, it, it will never take a person's opinion away. But it sort of gives you so much substance behind what a person's opinion is. And, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by data. I was one of those people that at first, maybe, went the more and more use of data, when data first started coming into football more and more frequently, I, I sort of didn't, weren't blind to it, but I sort of didn't really take it on as much. When I was younger, maybe I was sort of in denial a bit that being playing football a lot as a youngster that there's other things that you can use uh, that will uh, dictate how good a player is and there's uh, other things that you use that will dictate how bad a player is I suppose but over the last couple of years I've started using it well not using it but becoming more and more interested in it and paying more attention to it and I it is something that I, I would love to get into which was one of the uh, points why we I was so excited to be part of it and to have you on the, as a guest uh, just to get someone who uses it as much as yourself and the information that you can and, and knowledge that I give yourself I mean you clearly have got an in-depth knowledge surrounding it and the points that you've raised on the show it's been it's been, it's been fantastic cheers thank man, you very much it. yeah yeah thank you very much for that information and, and coming on as well but just um, just one last thing I would say is that um, I worked in financial services and you sort of learn certain expressions that stick with you. And one of them I learned was that not everything that is measured is valuable and not everything that's valuable can be measured. And that always exactly. stuck with me. And the second thing I learned was someone said to me once, data is only as useful as the person using it. Yeah, because... Yeah. If you have someone whose intention is to mislead you with data, the data is useless because then they've chosen which data you're going to look at to tell you the thing that they want you to, to hear, even though it's a lie. And you see that a lot in politics as well, is that people misusing data intentionally, they lie to you. And it doesn't mean the data's wrong. It just means the person's wrong. And if they didn't use a data instead that was just their opinion, it would be equally wrong because they're just making stuff up and then trying to find data that supports it and ignoring all of the data that says you're full of shit. That's wrong. You're lying. <laughs> and so that's the thing. Is yeah. That yeah. Making sure yeah. that you realize, analyze the person using the data because if, if their approach is wrong, it doesn't matter how what data they give you. The data is going to be wrong. They're, they're trying to lie to you. They're being disingenuous. So it doesn't have a value. And that's the thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, before we wind up the podcast, uh, I'd like to you know, put out the patron question from our patron Dieter van Gogh. He had a, uh, three questions to ask you, which first one being uh, about uh, a book which is called uh, named The Football Hackers from Christoph Biermann. He's asked if you've read this book. No, but I'm going to make a note of it now to read it. So yep. I've got a, a list of books that I, I want to track down and read. One of my problems is is that I live in Brazil and there's not a lot of books in English in Brazil. And a lot of books, if I was to try and read a book in Portuguese, I would probably misinterpret half the book. So there's no <laughs> point. So it's kind of hard to get books here. I kind of need to rely on e-books. So I'll, I'll try and track it down, see if I can get an e-book for it. Yeah, I like his second books. Yeah, and his second question was some suggestions, some books which you probably suggest for people who want to get into data or something to relate, something related to data, probably which is you know, informative. Okay, the, the most important thing I think is if if you want to get into data, the most important thing for me is always in understanding biases and how to fix your own biases, or maybe if you can't fix them, at least account for them. And, and they identify them, and so you can understand that they're, the, they're there. 
Um, and, and that's one of the things for me is, and I'm not sure where you pick that up from a book. I mean, I learned that in just working in financial services because if you're lying to people because you want to be right, if I have an opinion on a company, like say, for example, I think Google's going to be a really good company for people to buy back in the year 2000, right? And I'm looking for data to prove it because I want to be right. That's the wrong approach. I, I, I shouldn't be doing that. I should be looking for the, all of the data and presenting the honest answer of what the data says. And so that's the first thing is that learning good, I guess, ethics with data. And I'm not sure there's a book for that. But in terms of books, there's a book I read called Game Changers. It was actually recommended to me by someone on Twitter. And I haven't finished it yet. I'm reading it in bits because it's very... Uh, it's kind of broken up into sections. It's about how data is impacted on different sports, like Formula One, bobsledding, squash, football, rugby. And it's very, very interesting because even though the sports are all different and everything is very, very different, the approaches are always the same. The the, the way a, a data scientist would look at it in terms yeah. of solving the problems, in terms of to have improvement and to improve results, their thought processes are always the same. And so seeing their thought processes in the book is amazing. There was an example of the, the England rugby team, and there was a, a woman who um, uh, in South Africa who um, she, was, she was studying cognitive, um, pe people's cognitive reflexes, I guess would be the word, uh, in terms of like eye movements and what people are seeing based on the actions that they're doing. And the England rugby team ended up hiring her. And she came over and what she did was she got people to stand around the pitch with different colored flags. And at certain points during the game, they would hold one of them would hold up a flag and everybody on the pitch had to shout what color the flag was. And she realized that whenever a game, whenever people were losing or whenever the game was difficult or things were going against them and they were performing badly, nobody saw the flags. Everyone had their head down. Everyone was super focused on what they were doing. So no one saw the flags. And the purpose of the test was basically that on a rugby pitch, the team's formations tend to compress, which means usually the space is outside of where the ball is. And she was trying to encourage people to see the spaces on the pitch and where they are so that whenever your team recovered the ball, you could look for where the spaces are and open up the pitch quickly. And um, it was really groundbreaking her doing this. Basically, um, the guy, I can't remember, was it Wilson? The coach's name was Wilson, I think, at the time for England. He ended up doing a presentation before the World Cup. And the sole purpose of the presentation was to terrify all the other teams into realizing how advanced their analysis was. And he'd done a presentation of this thing about the opening up the pitch and how they'd done it and everything just before the World Cup. And all the other, the media and everyone in attendance was like, wow, we didn't even know that was a thing. And the other thing she done was she measured um, people's eye movements. She put like goggles on the players that measured their eye movements. Um, and they also done this in other sports like squash and in Formula One. And they've basically worked out that the thing that um, separates the absolute best in every sport is um, people's cognitive ability. How quickly they're processing information, how quickly their eyes move, where they look to take in information. Um, and basically the thing that sets apart, apart the best people in every sport is their cognitive ability, uh, their ability to learn, their ability to see, their ability to anticipate, all of those things on every single sport. Everyone at the top is always at an elite level. People like Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, if you test their cognitive ability to process information, it'll be at the, the very, very top of everyone on the pitch. Even though like Ronaldo's the most elite human in terms of fitness, Messi isn't, but it doesn't matter. They both think the same way. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really fascinating. Yep. And the final question that he had was, would you call data overrated or underrated at this point in time in football? Uh, in terms of on Twitter, it's overrated because people on Twitter don't understand data. Uh, not everyone. I, I just mean, like again, that general rule of like 99% of people on Twitter don't really understand data. Um, the people who are like on my level and above, Twitter's data is very useful in telling you certain things, but it's probably overused. And in terms of in football clubs, I imagine they're getting it exactly right. They're now employing people who perfectly understand the things that need to be understood, people that can 
scientists, engineers, people on that level. So, um, again, I think there's levels to it. I think it's overused on Twitter because people just don't understand what they're doing. When people are like comparing Firmino and Anthony Martial based on goals, it's just, there's no point to that. It's, yeah. it's just redundant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and and definitely when you say scientists, data scientists, engineers, it really makes me, you know, happy because I, I'm kind of on that road. And hopefully, hopefully if, if things go right, probably maybe 10, 15 years down the road, probably I can find myself probably bagging a role at a football club. Hopefully, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, Riff Rick, you'll have to stop comparing Firmino with Anthony Martial then. <laughs> the of goals that they score. Obviously. <laughs> I believe you're one of the people that Stephen's referring to. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing I would say on that is if you look at all the top people at the top clubs, they are where they are by coincidence rather than design. Yep. So, like, again, Dr. Ian Graham didn't start out to try and get into a football club and Will Spearman yeah. It's basically what they learned was useful to a club, but that, that was never their intention. So I guess what I'm saying is um, focus on your processes rather than your outcomes. Don't think too much about what you're, you're trying to get to. Just focus on being the best you can possibly be at data science. And it doesn't matter what field that's in. It doesn't matter if, like, uh, an, a marketing company approaches you to, to ask you to work on it. If, if you're getting your processes right and you end up at the best of what you do, and that's valuable to a club, they'll find you and you'll get a job in it. So even though it's not what you were planning all along, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah, 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 no. yeah. Yeah. So yes, that probably brings us to the end of this episode, Stephen. It, it, it has been quite fascinating and definitely my favorite episode so far, which probably I've hosted and I've talked to because... I've kind of learned a lot. It's been a fascinating discussion. And I, I could, to be honest, honestly speaking, I can actually go on and on and on speaking with you on this. <laughs> but yeah. unfor unfortunately, uh, yes, the listeners do probably have, you know, a bar of patience. So <laughs> obviously we'll mm -hmm. stop at this time. And hopefully, we hopefully uh, will have you on a podcast probably in the future as well, which oh, we would definitely doubt. Yeah. Definitely. Maybe maybe next time, what we'll, what we could do is have more Patreon questions, I guess, and then yes. that way it, it's kind yeah. of more it's going to cover more things because what, yes. what this ended up being was just a conversation, really, just in general, which is very good, but it's very long, and so but it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah really fun. I mean, yeah, really really detailed discussion. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, that no, was great. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And thank you to all our listeners as well who who are here listening this whole episode. Thank you so much. You make our show a success. And yeah, that's it probably. And until the next episode, bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye.